You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I'm your, I don't know if host makes sense to say, but I guess that's what it is. I'm your host. Huh? I'm your guide. Yeah, guide. I guess it's more like your guide uh, to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. We have another Solomon's Corner podcast called the Solomon's Corner Podcast, uh, where we interview thinkers and talk about different things in long form. This is a short form podcast. If you like it, please be sure to uh, follow and leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. Also, we have a contest coming up for people who are our subscribers uh, to our newsletter or following us on Twitter that we will be doing some giveaways for Andrew Clavin's A Strange Habit of Mind. It's a new book in the Cameron Winter series. I'm a big fan of Andrew Clavin, so make sure you go and pre-order that to support his work. And otherwise, if you want to try and win a free copy, please make sure that you're subscribed to our newsletter channels and all that stuff so you can keep up to date with how to win your copy. Today we're talking about Hannah Arendt and the discovery of, or not discovery, that's in the wrong section here. We're talking about promises, uh, the unpredictability and the power of promise, and we're also talking about world alienation. And like we talked about yesterday, there is this weird turn in her writing that suddenly becomes what would maybe be called a secularization of Christianity, but still trying to retain some of its miraculousness. It's very weird. Uh, turn. Still really interesting and uh, definitely gives her approach more credibility, I think, uh, than when I first started the book. I was I was struggling at the beginning of this book. I'm going to tell you right now, anyone who picks up the human condition, it's definitely worth the slog, but you're going to have to slog to about 230 pages till you start getting to some really, really good stuff. Unless, of course, you're like one of my friends who knows all the languages that she cites in her footnotes and is finding it a great joy to read. So, yesterday we talked about forgiveness, which uh, she said was essential to a society. But then she comes to uh, the power of promise. And this she also uses, she talks about the Roman legal system, but she attributes this to Abraham as the discoverer. So if Jesus is the discoverer of forgiveness and the miraculous power that humans have to forgive each other, which are her words, then Abraham is the discoverer of a covenant or promise. Now, this doesn't mean that she's trying to get into the theological aspects of covenantal, you know, theology or any of these kinds of things. She's talking about the fact that man doesn't know what is to come. And she sees Abraham as almost like a adventurer who decides that he's discovered some philosophical nugget, and so he's going to test it out, which is very modern, I think, way of interpreting things as like, I'm going to scientifically test my theory of promises. You know, it's just, that's a very modern interpretation on, you know, a ancient person who claims that, you know, God spoke to him. So in other words, a, a scientific interpretation of biblical history. But she still has a very important thought here on promises. She says that the moment that promises lose their their grounding in an uncertain world, meaning somebody who promises everything, promises that they'll be there, promises that they'll do this, promises that they'll do that, promises that they'll, you know, whatever it is, they just constantly are promising. 
but they failed to fulfill them, meaning they failed to recognize how significant a promise is given the mass ocean of uncertainty that life is. Man can't predict the future, and so this is what makes a promise unique, that when somebody says, I promise to do X, they are fighting the uncertainty of life. They're putting their banner, so to speak, in the uncertainty of reality and the possibilities that can unfold in the future. So she says, the moment promises lose their character as isolated islands of certainty in an ocean of uncertainty, that is when this faculty is misused to cover the whole ground of the future and to map out a path secured in all directions. They lose their binding power and the whole enterprise becomes self-defeating. And anyone who's following modern politics today feels like politicians promise the moon and never fulfill. And as a result, that's because they are refusing to allow us to recognize the uncertainty of the future and the way that they are preventing us from seeing the uncertainty of the future is trying to put themselves in a position of omniscience and the fact that they can always know what's coming down the pipe and their promises, quote unquote, never fail. But of course, they always seem to fail inevitably. And so this is why these promises, according to Hannah and Rent, become meaningless. And so the question becomes, well, then what is it that keeps a society free in light of this uncertainty and in light of the purposes or in light of the promises that, that people make that they can't fulfill? And where she goes with this is that death is inevitable and there is this inevitable uncertainty that's on the horizon for every human being, every single one. But there's, there's something about human nature that comes into play that interrupts this uncertainty just by virtue of us being human. And that is the ability to create or to begin anew. And she even, what's interesting too, as a side note, she even cites Nietzsche. Nietzsche, who's in, you know, kind of the father of nihilism, even he saw in the Faculty of Promises the very distinction, this is a quote, the very distinction which marks off human from animal life. That was his view. And so she she puts this idea of promises and uncertainty as the quote-unquote sum total of mores to make promises and to keep them. And so in light of this, though, she says, but death is certain. And so what is it that keeps us from being nihilistic? And again, we have this kind of weird way that she's writing especially for Christians who really do know their, their Bibles. That's not me like touting my, my, my knowledge, but there, there's a lot of Christians that do, so they, they would probably have the same experience. That as you're reading, you're like, man, it really feels like she's, she's, she's encroaching on some Christian ideas here, the way she's talking about new life. And so she'll, she'll say this. She'll say that the, 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 the human nature to begin or to create is the interruption to this inevitability of death and uncertainty. So she writes on page 246, the lifespan of man running toward death would inevitably carry everything human to ruin and destruction if it were not for the faculty of interrupting it and beginning something new, a faculty which is inherent in action like an ever-present reminder that men, though they must die, are not born in order to die, but in order to begin. And so you start to think about this, you know, what's the most significant human birth that's ever happened? And she doesn't say it explicitly in that quote, but, you know, if you're, if you're a practicing Christian, you, you'd think, huh, well, that's an interesting statement. And then you, you think about Christ's birth, and you're like, but, you know, I'm reading too much into it. 
Ah, contraire, fellow reader. She says, It is in the other words, the birth of new men, or sorry, it is, in other words, the birth of new men and the new beginning, the action they are capable of by virtue of being born. Only the full experience of this capacity can bestow upon human affairs faith and hope. Those two essential characteristics of human existence, which Greek antiquity ignored altogether, discounting the keeping of faith as a very uncommon and not too important virtue and counting hope among the evils of illusion in Pandora's box. It is this faith in and hope for the world that found perhaps its most glorious and most succinct expression in the few words with which the Gospels announced their quote-unquote glad tidings. A child has been born unto us. And so she obviously alludes to Christ here and the nativity scene. Now, she's obviously not drawing to the salvation or any of this kind of stuff. She's not alluding to Christ as the propitiation of your sins or any of these kinds of things. But for us thinkers, and especially Christian thinkers, what would it look like, though, when that child grows up, when faith and hope actually mature? Well, they, they mature into a, a king or a, a warrior king, as Christ seems to be depicted in Revelation, but also as a conqueror of death. And so we all have a D-Day, a death day, that is inevitably approaching. And it's very interesting that, that, you know, I really enjoy reading philosophers when you can find these kind of little nuggets that kind of just explode out the significance of Christianity and, and the Christian faith. And you can follow it to a, a place that maybe you wouldn't have arrived at just merely reading your own Bible and staying in your church. And what we find here is that death is an inevitable war that we will all have to engage in, and that battlefield is known as a deathbed. And when we approach that deathbed, inevitably people feel like there is uncertainty, that there is this unknown aspect. But in Christ's birth, you find faith and hope anew. And in his resurrection, we find a conqueror that has come to lead us into battle with death. And just like she talks about islands and uncertainty, and she says the islands of promise are on the ocean of uncertainty, Christ doesn't plant an island, he plants a kingdom, and in the battle of death, he plants his banner in which he has conquered death, and he says, I will take you into battle, and you can have confidence in me, your supreme commander who conquered death. And so it's very interesting to see that in the face of a child, in the face of your own child, in the face of new life, we can be reminded of faith and hope no matter how dark it gets, that children are a reminder of the child that came with the ultimate faith and hope, and that children also, politically speaking, are a reminder of the faith and hope that we can have, that even though there is this uncertainty, they are a reminder that we have a promise to them to do the best that we can to create anew, to begin anew, in spite of all the craziness that you find around you, figuring out a way to activate that creative power that God put in you, despite the uncertainty and inevitability of death, because even in that battle that you will have, you have a conqueror of death who will lead you into battle and promises a certain victory. He is a promise in a certain victory in the uncertainty of death.
And in the same way that we have uncertainty in politics, like uh, Hannah Arendt says, we ourselves have to make sure that we are forming communities around the promise and purposes that will give children the same faith and hope that they gave us for the future. So anyway, those are my thoughts on, uh, on, the, uh, on the section. 34, Unpredictability and the Power of Promise. The next section is chapter 4, the Vita Activa, not sure if I'm saying that right, and the Modern Age. And this begins section 35 with world alienation. And just a couple more comments on this before we go, because we are a book club, and I'm sitting at 15 minutes. There's only one thing that I want to bring up here, because this is a very um, dense chapter. But one of the things that is interesting as you're reading this book is, if you have the time, get the copy of Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Because he makes some very interesting, very brief statements about technology and the way it kind of shrunk the world. And that is essentially her point here, is that technology is shrinking the world, both uh, outwardly and inwardly for man. And the more that technology has started to develop, her example being the airplane, she has this very interesting kind of view. It ties into the beginning with Sputnik going up into, into space where she says, you know, man can now finally leave his, his prison of Earth. Here she kind of elaborates on that, and she gets into this idea of what the airplane does is it shrinks the distance between people, but at the cost of, of removing yourself from what you know most imminently, which is your surroundings. So you can go up into, into, the, to, into the airspace, and you can travel very, very far, but you're in a foreign element. You're not in your natural state. And so she takes this idea, and she extends it out, and she uses the Christian Reformation, actually, as part of it, uh, and a guy named Max Weber, who wrote uh, a, a 1920s essay that she cites extensively throughout this chapter, as the alienation from within your own society because you had this whole Catholic enterprise, and then Martin Luther and Calvin come along, and Descartes and others, and they really emphasize the self in light of this whole thing. And you can see that as technology has increased, we have become alienated from the world, which permits us to do more and more things that we probably wouldn't normally do. For example, I doubt many people out there who enjoy eating a hamburger would feel comfortable killing the cow, especially if they raised it themselves for beef. They raise it, they call it Bessie, they become buddies with it. Like most people somewhat have an emotional attachment. You probably also would not feel comfortable, you know, putting a whole bunch of pigs into a, you know, six inch by, or, you know, small container that's only the size of their body for their entire existence. You would see this as probably cruel or whatever, but because you're so distanced from the process, you don't actually think about it when you take a bite of your burger or whatever. This is what the, the Greenpeace people get all upset about. But I only use that as an example to show that you've been alienated from the process. You're not part of the process. It's not right in front of you. And so as a result, you end up with this um, disconnect. And so you, you, you just kind of keep going about your life. And what she says is, is that because, again, in the previous section of the uncertainty of future events, no matter how plainly people state it, or how much they give a certainty of the future. They do not have hindsight, so they cannot know what the impact is going to be 
on the events of the future. They can't know with certainty what the events of the future are going to hold. And this is why it's important for us to have promises within each other's communities, because on the global scale, we can't necessarily predict the full outcome, you know, the, the way Elon Musk or politicians will say, you know, if you listen to Elon Musk, he says, oh, it's super easy. You know, all I got to do is this, 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 and this, and it's, it's not going to be the big of a deal. While he may be able to predict how the math will work, he cannot predict, for example, how the world will look 600 years after his, his satellites have all, you know, come and gone. He can't predict the imp impact that it's going to have to the scale that it will actually have. And so this is her point in this section, that, that technology is, is resulting in an alienation of man with his most natural state and his understanding of the world. And so it's, it's an interesting section, but it's very def, uh, definitely a, uh, a difficult one. But the last thing that, that comes about that's really interesting is on footnote four, and she talks about the obsession with self. She says one of the most and this is before we get to the footnote, she says one of the most persistent trends in modern philosophy since Descartes, and perhaps its most original contribution to philosophy, has been exclusive concern with the self. An attempt to reduce all experiences with the world as well as with other human beings to experiences between man and himself. And she then expands on, on Karl Marx's thought in a footnote, and she says that he basically uh, saw this... Uh, the same, he, he was obsessed with um, subjectivism, and he, he, she says this in the footnote, I'll just read it. However, such occasional considerations play a minor role in his work, Karl Marx's work, which remained firmly rooted in the modern age's extreme subjectivism. In Marx's ideal society, where men will produce a human being, will, where men will produce as human beings, world alienation is even more present than it was before, for they will be able to objectify their individuality, their peculiarity, to confirm and actualize their true being. And so this is interesting when you consider some of the bumper sticker slogans we have, my body, my choice, my pronouns are, my victim status, or in the Christian one, my Jesus. How much of self has immersed all, has immersed itself into all of our descriptions Everything is my idea, my this, my that, my everything is about the self. And so she, she's going to elaborate on this in this section. And it's interesting, and it was pretty dense, but um, that pretty much wraps up our morning thoughts for today. Again, please make sure you follow and subscribe on all of our Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Truth Social. We're on there too, although not as much. And uh, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. And don't forget to stay in touch for uh, the Strange Habit of Mind contest for Andrew Clavin's new book. We've got 10 of them that we're going to give away. So there's a good chance, because we're new, that you could be a lucky winner of that. So stay tuned on how you can support us and, and possibly win a free book. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks a bunch, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. In the meantime, keep thinking.